Hey guys, this is Alex, and welcome to the Two Dudes, Brews, and Reviews podcast. On today's episode, we're talking about the live-action and animated hybrid film from 1988, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to the podcast, give us a rating, and maybe even tell your friends about us. With that being said, we hope you enjoy the show. I went on vacation to uh, Orange Beach. It's like Gulf Shores, Alabama. It's like right next to each other. Yeah, I mean, it was a good time. I relaxed, finished uh, reading, finished The Way of Kings. It's probably been like a month. I think I started it back in February or March. It was tough to get through until like the last 300 pages. It's like a 1,100 page book. I read the book on the way down and then I finished it on the beach. And man, it was great. You know that that book that you read was good because you went on vacation and then you skipped past the vacation shit and went, so anyways, this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that was like my, that was like my, what I wanted to do on vacation. I was like, my goal for this vacation is to like kind of go with the flow and relax yeah, and do whatever. But my sole purpose of being there was to have the time slotted to read this book. Uh, I get it. As soon as I got it finished, I was like super happy. Um, we ate great food, a lot of seafood, crab legs, shrimp, all this all this fun stuff. and Sent me a lot of cigar <laughs> selfies, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I just send you uh, pictures when I'm on vacation. And, and yes, I'm usually smoking something. When I was in Key West, it was cigarettes, and on this vacation, it was cigars. Wish I could say I had some life update stuff, but I didn't do a goddamn thing when you were gone. I delivered pizza, watched movies, been watching The Boys. Mm-hmm. Lately, yeah, that's something. Which is really great. I think we like kind of talked about it on episode or two before this when we Mm -hmm. first started it but it's really good before we hop into our film tonight we're drinking urban artifact peaches and cream it's a nitro fruit tart and this wasn't really a hard choice for either of us because we looked at it at the liquor store and we're like that sounds amazing and it is it's very good Sometimes we forget to bring up what we're drinking Correct. on the podcast. I know. This is one of those nights where like we absolutely we have to. It's really fucking good. We can kind of skip over stuff if we forget to like have a thematic tie-in. But yeah, this shit's really good. It's really tart, but the finish is that vanilla cream. You were reading this earlier, but the <laughs> yeah. back the back of the can says it has half of a peach and three dashes of vanilla. And this might be my favorite thing that we've had from Urban Artifacts so far. This is pretty good. It doesn't wear you out. It's 7% though, and I've already drank half of my glass, so I gotta be careful here. Oh, you're like going 10 minutes. It's really, really easy to forget. You're drinking like I am, or like how I usually do. It's like really refreshing. I can't help but drink it. You have the floor. This is your recommendation. Lead me there. Yes, sir. So I recommended the movie. It's uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Kind of a childhood favorite of mine, I suppose. Really? I don't know if it played a role in your childhood at all. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. He's done some famous movies. Forrest Gump, Castaway. Mm-hmm. I believe Back to the Future and most think, of its sequels. I think he was... I thought he was a writer. Nah, he might have been. I looked at his IMBD, right? IMDB? IMDB, sorry. I looked at his page. Beowulf, like 2007 or 2008, Beowulf. He did that. The he animated? Did, yeah, and he did Polar Express, too. Which, I mean, makes sense for that time. He was probably like trying to push that uncanny valley fucking whack shit i was actually surprised that you knew what this movie was really yeah you think so i mean it's 88 you were born about what 10 years later yeah 11 11 years later holy shit you're a 99 baby 99 god damn 
Oh my God, you're right. Yeah, man. Holy shit. I've talked about it, yeah. When was the first time that you had watched this movie? I don't know. I feel like I've caught glimpses of it here and there. I mean, I think I've seen it on TV a few times. Like, that's like the only way I ever consumed it. I, I knew how the movie ended once uh, I started remembering things as I was watching the film. And so it wasn't like super far-fetched for me to understand, but... I really had no idea what the plot was. I knew, obviously, based off the title of the film, that, hey, it's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's going to be like a whodunit. And I remember, like, big moments, like, especially, like, uh, bar scenes and, like, the uh, piano lounge type of club, music club and everything, and Toontown and the ending of the film. But I don't really remember, like, the setup. And I remember the beginning of the film, but I just, I, I didn't have an understanding of where the film was heading before it started. I think the first few times that I saw this, when I was a kid, I watched this many, many times on a VHS copy that mm. I had. I don't think I was old enough to really understand the plot. I mean, this is really an adult movie dressed up with Warner Brothers and Disney characters kind of surrounding everything. That's a huge thing for me because while watching the film, the first go around, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, hey man, this guy's an alcoholic. Like, why are we like <laughs> throwing this in the faces of children? And we'll get there with the other things that I caught, but like just relative to what I thought was going to happen. Did you think it was going to be more kid friendly going uh -huh. into it? Yeah. I, mean, I did too. I'd forgotten a lot of the taboo shit that they threw in here. It's not like unheard of for children's movies to kind of have moments that are aimed towards adults you know you ever like uh gone through uh like a youtube compilation video of like moments that adults only notice in kids movies and stuff or, or it's just like there's like small things i mean spongebob was full of them uh-huh and like i think ice age has a few oh, i'm sure and you know what i mean it's like kind of like this thing where obviously adults are making these films and you don't really have that perspective when you watch a, a, a film as a kid. You're just there for the fucking cartoon. You're there for the uh, fucking scrap. Like in Ice Age, like that was the big thing. I didn't care what was going to happen in the movie because all the advertisement for the film was like scrap, like getting crushed and like stomped and trampled and like in <laughs> outer space. Like, you know what I mean? Like it was all this yeah. great, you know what I mean? So you don't have a fucking developed frontal cortex, man. You gotta like, you're just there for the, <laughs> the party. And so when you get to the films like this and you catch stuff, I guess I just don't understand how it makes its way there. But because this movie is like all that basically for it's the most all part, adult content, but it's, isn't it advertised towards children? I don't know. It's rated PG-13, mm. isn't it? No? Is it PG? I didn't know that. Keep in mind, in the 80s, PG is like you're treading water. Yeah. Because like, I remember watching like Airplane. There's like full-blown like uh, female nudity in that movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, whoa, we didn't expect that to come in. I mean, Gremlins was PG. Uh-huh. Uh, the first Indiana Jones. I mean, there's like a guy melting in that movie like mm -hmm. it's very gory yeah. gremlins is pretty gory at times Chainsaw, yeah all that stuff i don't know i guess i just i didn't really put it in that perspective because i caught it like i'm pretty sure like it's been on cartoon network a few times like probably it's probably where i watched it as a kid oh i'm sure it doesn't feel overly explicit though there are like animated films that are completely directed towards adult like Beowulf being one, for example, like you just didn't know when you were younger because yeah. when you have the correlation of, oh, something's animated, it's meant for children. You don't know. You don't get that when you're a kid. I mean, is there other examples that you can think of that do that? Like other animated movies? Yeah. 
that are like for kids that are that no have that are that are like adult oriented. Uh, like that <laughs> shitty sausage party movie that came out. Oh uh, yeah, stuff like that. I was thinking more like retro. I'm trying to think of a couple. None that come to mind. But who was this for when it came out? If I had to guess, probably adults that might be nostalgic for. 1940s and 50s style Warner Brothers shit. Uh, I mean, even me, when the movie opens up with the short little cartoon, I had like an immense an amount of nostalgia for like Wile E. Coyote and Bugs Bunny and shit, where I think that style of humor and animation is almost timeless in a way. I still am a huge fan of Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry is fucking great. When I was a kid, I mean, and I, I mean kid very lightly, like maybe like I'm 13, 14, 15, like still coming home on the bus from school and you get home around 3.30 and I'd get home and the first thing I'd turn on was Tom and Jerry on Cartoon Network and then it would lead into like my favorite shows which were like Adventure Time and the regular show, like that was my bread and butter when uh, like my younger years of high school and like older years of uh, middle school and everything, like eighth grade, I really, really enjoyed that stuff and Tom and Jerry was like my favorite out of like everything. If we didn't know what to watch, we'd watch Tom and Jerry. Yes, this opening scene is very reminiscent of that. The slapstick, uh-huh. environmental danger type stuff. A character moving through an environment and, and getting the shit rocked out of them. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I guess that is like like MGM and you know Warner Brothers and all that. Like how that pretty much is the whole point of the animation. It's just to beat the shit out of whatever character is in the... Pretty much. Uh-huh. I mean, Elmer Fudd was on the receiving end of shit like this. Uh-huh. Uh, Wile E. Coyote. It, it was all kind of the same formula across cartoons with slight differences in style. This opening scene is a complete homage to that. And it, like, really holds up well. Like, the colors fucking pop. And oh, yeah. I was like, damn, this looks really good. And I guess, like, uh, probably it's when it was made... And the fact that it has movie production budget behind it, doesn't it feel like the frames are tighter? Like there's more frames in between animation? Like it felt really, really clean. Like It was uh, smooth. Yeah. yeah. Compared to like when, I mean, I'm trying to think like Tom and Jerry was probably like the 60s, 70s and stuff like that. That stuff, it's a little bit more crude. Obviously with like the filmmakers and the animators working on this, they you know, they have to like knock it out of the park. You have to make it feel movie quality and you're getting your you're getting your money's worth in, in that respect. But man, it looks fucking good. I was a little worried when I first recommended this because I was kind of afraid of this being too kitty or um I don't know, just like falling back on a style that you or I really want to be into. But as soon as the short ends and we realize that we're like on a movie set mm-hmm. and you have all these vulgar characters running around and the woman that was in the sketch is actually an animatronic pair of legs. Uh-huh. Did you see that? Yeah. You can kind of tell that it's going to be a little bit of a special movie mm-hmm. going forward. I remember this during the actual, the short, I'm like, Hey, isn't the baby like <laughs> an adult man? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, let me think here. This is like a perfect way to open up the film though. And like regards to how we're going to move through the rest of it to introduce like animation and then break that fourth wall between animation and real life. Mm-hmm. I found it overall just like get the ball rolling. I thought, hey, this movie's like still really charming. It's super charming. But sometimes it gets on my nerves a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the, the tuneness of uh-huh. it. I think like later in the film, the back half, I get really, really frustrated in certain aspects. And we'll get there. 
Yeah. But I think the second act is it's iffy. Tough. It's yeah. iffy for me. Mm-hmm. I think that the first and the third act are almost perfect. But I get really, I start zoning out in the middle of the movie a little bit. I think it might be because of Roger is a really annoying character. And then the farther you get into the movie, you're more ingrained into tunes, like where mm-hmm. uh, Eddie Valiant goes to Toontown itself. I'm not really into that stuff as much as the tunes being in the city mm-hmm. with him. It becomes a little too much. I share the same sentiment for the most part. And it's not so much the annoying, the annoying part of like the tunes, like in moving in the the latter half of the film. I think the best technical moments are in the first and the second act of the film, and in the third act, it kind of like drops the ball a little bit. You think so? As far as like like a technicality goes, in some regard, it's not like bad. I just think there was a few moments that really bothered me. You're telling me you didn't like flat Christopher Lloyd after getting run over by the steamroller. <laughs> I like that. Hey, just a side note. God damn, that guy's teeth were white. Yeah, Jesus they were. Jesus Christ. Like they, I mean, obviously they're like fucking veneers or some shit that they put on the actor himself. But I was like, God damn, that guy's teeth are white. And I was like, oh yeah, he's a tune. I forgot. And mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, okay. So I'm like, maybe like the teeth being white. Also, it adds good contrast to his face and the shots that he's in. Yeah. Stuff like that. Where do we start? This will be hard to skip around. We can do it, though. I really like... I don't know. We get a lot out of that first scene. We get to see the short, and everybody's pissed and because Rod, Roger can't make stars appear. He flubs his line, man. Uh-huh. I think it's great how, as he's walking to the trailer following the director, the camera kind of pans over a little bit, and then you get Eddie Valiant in the shot. And he just says in the most disgusted way, tunes. Uh-huh. You know, I have my gripes with this character. With Eddie? Mm-hmm. Damn, I think he's the best one in the movie. Oh, I mean, like, I don't think he's, like, uh, like it's a terrible role or, like, a terrible character. I think some of the challenges with the film of animating a character that's not there and having having an actor pretend that a character's there. It was really difficult. And they did it in a lot of interesting ways to make it work. Like they would have puppets on set and they would shoot the same shot twice. And so like they would have the puppet on set and like the voice actor for that character off to the side. And like Roger obviously was there. He, the guy wore like a, a rabbit suit. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you know about yeah. this. I watched the documentary for the film. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. It's like 30-something, almost 40 minutes. It's like uh, just like a making of film. Oh, no shit. Talks that- to like the the producers, like Spielberg's in it for a second, and like a lot of the animators, and obviously uh, Zemeckis speaks on the film a lot. But yeah, man, like the guy, I don't know the, the actor's name that plays Roger. He's the guy from Zodiac that when Jake Gyllenhaal goes, ah, uh, uh, the basement, the, the basement scene. <laughs> That's awesome. He's the projectionist. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's weird. Uh, <laughs> he wears the he wears the <laughs> rabbit suit on set. Like, I don't think anybody told him to do that. No, he, he requested it. And uh, during the documentary, they mentioned a little side story. One of, like, the, I think one of the animators makes a comment, and they said, uh, you know, on set, he would wear the, the suit, and then they would go to, like, lunch at, like, the studio and stuff. And a couple other filmmakers... Like probably other techs and crew ma- crew members and everything were saying, "Oh my God, you see that fuck that who who framed Roger Rabbit? The guy's in a in a, a rabbit suit. That shit's gonna flop." <laughs> they, you know, they have no idea. Yeah, um, they had to make it work in that aspect of acting when nothing's there. 
and he does a great job. Like don't like he fucking sells it really, really well. Like he had to go to mime school to like pretend like there's weight in his hand. You know what I mean? Like when like the moments where he picks up Roger, you have to pretend that there's weight in your arm. You know, it, you know, you have to small things like that really help sell the performance. But the stuff with him and him being like a full blown alcoholic, like really bothered me because all of a sudden, like he just decides right then and there that he's going to stop being an alcoholic in the middle of the road. Yeah. And it didn't really lead up to, like he never acknowledged that he had a problem Uh -uh. up until that point. Nope. So that was like really underwritten. Now, I like that he was an alcoholic. <laughs> it makes him a little bit him more... Him and I, we get along, you know? We have things in common. <laughs> Damn it, you're right. <laughs> oh, it gives your hero something to fight with, although it was underwritten in that aspect. It was the only thing really about his character that really bothered me. Other mm. than that, he was great. I love like his interaction with the bartender. I can't remember her name. Dolores. Dolores, yes. I really liked her character, too. I don't know. I feel like... You do get like this little slice of what their lives are like. And then this whole Roger Rabbit conundrum has like really kind of sit there, sit there like normal day to day. And it's like turned it up over its head. And I don't know. I I enjoyed that stuff. And I feel like they really set up in a small way of like showing that both of these characters are actually like kind of beaten up and like kind of down on their luck. And I like that. And they did it really subtly. And then that's all like in the first hour is like all this um a lot of exposition let's put it that way i don't know you get like good backstory i think it's told in like a really natural way for the most part though i mean the whole side plot with eddie and his dead brother uh, i think there's a great cinematography thing where he goes back to the office and the camera pans across uh, his desk it shows all these newspaper articles Mm -hmm. and it's a continuous shot yeah and when it reaches right back around to eddie it's like a night had lapsed like Mm -hmm. a a night had passed and where he's, he's passed out on the desk and everything. I thought that I thought that shit was great. That was really smart. It's an interesting. I, I think like this is a good scene to talk about it too. The shot was it was in '88. Yeah, that scene in particular is great homage to like film noir. Eddie, he's a detective. He's a private investigator, and his whole his whole goal is to investigate Roger's wife. What's her name? Jessica Rabbit. Really bad with the names tonight. I'm glad I got you here. Uh, <laughs> Jessica, Roger's been, he's fucking beat up, man. He can't get his lines right because it's rumored that, you know, Jessica's been uh, playing patty cake, you know, stuff like that, where they're not doing well and it's fucking him up. Poor Roger. This is one of the things that shocked me the most on the first rewatch where he goes to take pictures of her through the window. Yeah. And she's like screaming patty cake and pleasure. <laughs> and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sitting it, like on my couch at 2 a.m. in the morning and I'm like, oh my God. God like, yeah. I watched this when I was five years old. Uh-huh. And I guess the joke is that when he shows them the photos, they're literally playing patty cake, which is funny. Well, it's set up around the Jessica Rabbit and I can't remember his acne. Acme, yeah. Uh, he's uh, he's like a, a goofball, almost like a, a gag artist. He owns Toontown and the Toons and he's like a a career trickster, so to speak. And he lives on that shit. So like goofball shit. Like I think when we first meet him is when Eddie is going to investigate and they're at the, the piano bar. 
the introduction to Acme is he like shoots ink on Eddie's shirt and gives him a handshake as a gag, like the buzzer in the hand, like, oh, it's a classic. This guy's a fucking goofball. I was like quite irritated with him, like when we first met him. Yeah, but uh, I think that like that interaction like really sets up one of like the craziest technical scenes I've ever seen in all of film. Like outside of cinematography and like our favorite directors, like Villeneuve is my favorite technical director as far as like visual, as far as, like shots go, and just like the way things feel, having like a cohesive product. Like this shit was hard to do. Oh, I bet. The scene is so lively. Like, you can tell that they put a lot of detail into things that maybe didn't even need it. I believe the film took, like, two years to animate on top of the shooting and stuff. And I think they did it, like, a little bit at a time from what I know. Like, they would shoot things and they would animate and you wouldn't get, like, that full product. It wasn't like they they shot every scene and then sent it to the animators. It was like they would shoot scenes, send it to the animators, and like work around it. And they would keep shooting, and they would send stuff to animators and all these things. But this scene in particular was like they would have like the penguins would carry trays of drinks to the human actors that were there on set. But and, they're real trays. But they're real trays with real drinks. And they would be set up on like almost like steel rods and they would be under the ground and an actor would pull it like push them across or not an actor but like a crewmate would push them across the floor like the floor was cut out for that the piano the pianos are being played by daffy duck and donald duck which is like crazy that the ips are bashing this is the first and only time that this was ever allowed to be done Uh uh-huh i think that robert zemeckis had final say on the cut so he was able to do whatever he wanted with these characters as long as they appeared on screen for the exact amount of time. So like Bugs Bunny couldn't have more screen time than Mickey Mouse mm, type shit. Yeah. Very Which is biz- funny that they're on they they appear in the same scene. Uh-huh. I'm baffled that Disney allowed this. Like Warner Brothers, like I get in this the would 80s, never this would never happen ever again. No, never. The only time it has been done is Spielberg's Ready Player One. That's the only other time I can think of them doing this. And besides, like, these two instances would be, like, when Fairly Odd Parents and Jimmy Neutron would meet <laughs> as a TV. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, that was a big thing. But these are things that are, like, under the same roof. Uh-huh. I also find it weird that they allowed these characters to be p- portrayed as dickheads in a lot of yeah. <laughs> instances. I mean, even Mickey Mouse is kind of a jerk in this movie when he's, like, the nicest character in existence almost. Yeah, it's really funny because they, in Disney's cartoons, the characters are like, things are happening to them, and it's less about them doing things to other characters. You ever notice that? Like in, uh, like you ever watch, for example, Donald Duck, it's like he's with like his nephews, like the three nephews, and like they're fucking up his day, Mm -hmm. or if it's Mickey Mouse, like he's running into, into, into Pete and goofy and all the, you know things like that were like the environment and like they're trying to work through a situation and they're like running into obstacles that way and warner brothers it's wiley e. coyote is running off a cliff you know the roadrunners fucking his day up with daffy duck and elmer fudd elmer fudd jesus names names it's things like, places these are things <laughs> that neither of us have thought about in a long time but those characters are interacting in a much more violent way compared to disney and so when you get bugs bunny and mickey mouse both like refusing a parachute to (laughs) eddie and toontown it's like it was very very weird in that moment i was thinking hey like 
Mickey Mouse doesn't do this. Yeah. This is very, very odd to me. Like, it's in character for Bugs Bunny to do something like Correct. that. Like, he's a dick most of the time. Yeah. It, it just kind of, like, was weird to think about, like, the perspective of that. Like, they would never let these characters... They would never, like, let that situation arise for these characters to kind of be degraded or, like, their brand to be fucked up with like mm-hmm. that. In Ready Player One, it worked in the way that, hey, all these characters that are appearing on screen right now are real people and they don't really have they're not a, a portrayal of a brand or an ip they're really just like skins for people in in the world you know what i mean yeah did robert zemeckis have proof of walt disney's frozen head or something is that how he got, got approval know. for this that's like it blows my head it's like the dark side of hollywood bro i don't know i feel like blackmail had to be a part of this somehow but getting to see these characters together in the scene really helped, in my opinion. Like, uh, uh, how do you put it? It, like, humanized and personified the cartoons quite a bit in a way. It's weird to me because it kind of feels like this is a place out in Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like, it, the movie's set up in a way where it makes it very believable that, oh, yeah, the cartoons are real things and we have to, like, they're on a, on a, a schedule and they're on the payroll and, you know, the manager for fucking Daffy Duck has to approve. You know what I mean? It kind of uh-huh. feels like there's, it adds, it, it personifies them, gives them more weight. And it, it, I don't know, it added a lot to me. And I appreciated it a lot as an adult. Compared to like when I was a kid, you know, this shit would go right over my head. Oh yeah. I think I enjoy it much more as an adult now, aside from the nitpicks that I'm sure we'll get into at some point. Piss break. What are we talking about? We're talking about the peanut bar scene and everything. I think we're just talking about like the integration of animation and real world objects. I think it does a really, really good job. And I think this is one of the the big moments where really feels like there's good weight to the scenes and stuff because like the piano like blows open and like a hole gets blown through the piano from a cannon being shot through it. They're using real pianos, right? Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember if they were animated or not. And they get pulled off screen. The, the pianos get pulled off screen with the characters and the stools are just left. They do the stereotypical big crane uh-huh. item that like sweeps people up almost like the shepherd's hook yeah Yeah. okay that's a better way to put it yeah it's it's every scene where Mm -hmm. this stuff is being used like roger sits on a a box in an alley and like dust is kicked up and the box moves or he grabs onto somebody's shirt collar and it moves or in like the first real showing in that first opening short is roger storms off set and i think he like knocks over something while he's storming off yeah shows that when the filmmakers were making the film and they had to like show a test screening, I believe to the studio, or maybe it was like an audience, I can't quite remember. And it wasn't even the the actor of Eddie. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it was like a fill-in detective. And they did a short film and it does have Roger in it and it is like the voice of Roger and all these. But it was like to show that, hey, this will work. Like Roger like knocks over a, a trash can or some crates or something as he's going down the stairs. Uh, and that's just one of the big things that makes this work is the human interaction and the the fact that these cartoons can move through a scene, even though they're not there, and move uh, objects on set. And it be believable. Mm-hmm. Because if they weren't touching 
that was the big thing with having puppets on set. Having an actor be on the same eyeline as the cartoon. Because uh, the best way it was described, and that the, the actor that plays Eddie actually in the documentary mentions, if I put my hand in front of my face, I can stare at my hand. But as soon as I move my hand away, my eyes have to focus what's farther away. Mm-hmm. So not and, ha- and an audience can tell when somebody's doing that. Correct. There were moments in the film where it's not quite perfect, but I, I can say, think of one in particular when Roger shows up at the apartment mm-hmm. or uh, the office building for the first time mm-hmm. and he's standing on the bed and Eddie's looking at him. You can tell that he's looking like right through something mm-hmm. and that bugged me a little bit. But for the most part, I would say like at least 80% of the time it works, right? Especially considering this is like the first time it was done on this scale. Uh-huh. I think it should be said that this isn't the first animation human hybrid that's been done old old stuff like uh mary poppins and stuff Mm -hmm. back in the day where the camera would be fixed and they would just kind of animate around like a Mm -hmm. blank background which is really boring but i'm assuming it was groundbreaking at the time yeah this was way more kinetic every scene Mm -hmm. has so much life to it i think part of what I don't know. You remember like being a kid and watching commercials on like when you're watching cartoons and stuff and there would be like a kid talking to a cartoon or like an advertisement or how many licks does it take to get this center of a Tootsie Pop? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if like uh, the whole basis of the story is based off a novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? Yes, it is. And it was written by a guy. Don't remember his name. Who gives a fuck? He ain't in the movie. We don't care. (laughs) He, uh... He wrote it after watching a commercial where people were talking to a, a cartoon. And so that was like the whole basis of, hmm. and I think that book is much more vulgar than this. Yeah. Um, but I think Spielberg and Zemeckis wrote around the script. I think there was like 40 drafts of the script. Finally, the the final draft got made into this film. But yeah, man, like it's, it does add good weight. And I think if we're going to still talk about the piano scene, what really I think helps you get introduced to, Jessica Rabbit, and she has her solo performance. I don't know if it's like a burlesque. I don't know how you would describe it. It's not like a burlesque thing, but it's uh, it's like imagine remember in Forrest Gump when Jenny's singing naked behind the guitar. It's kind of kind of similar to that. It's (laughs) somewhat erotic in an uncomfortable way that a a man of my uh, how do you put it, my sexuality would uh, he hates to admit, but uh, goddamn, this is one sexy cartoon. Pulling at your, <clears throat> your shirt collar to <clears throat> to cool off a little bit. Poor Eddie, man, he got he got it done. You know, he he was fucking getting all frisked up. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, he didn't know what to do either. I think this was pretty cool, though. I liked the inclusion of Betty Boop. Yeah, <laughs> that scene was really nowhere. smart, man. That was really smart. And she was voiced by the original actress that uh-huh. did her voice. Eighty nine at the time of being filmed, mm. I believe. Yeah, just like little homages to old stuff like that. I really enjoy. <laughs> she and she's men- still in black and white. And she mentions that. She said, uh, Eddie says, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. And she says, yeah, like work's been rough ever since cartoons went to color. Like yeah. That's smart shit. That's good writing right there. That's good use of that character. I have a question. When they talk about the bar before Eddie goes there, they make a comment about it's a human only bar, but like the cartoons or the performers, mm. are they insinuating that there's segregation of cartoons in this world Mm. is this like some kind of commentary on slavery slavery (laughs) or race or something i don't know i I don't really think about it like that i found that really odd because eddie has a hate for for tunes ah it doesn't go overboard with it i guess there is like 
reservations and prejudices towards cartoons, especially like from Eddie's eyes being like the cartoon that murdered my, my brother, my bro, my fucking homie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't, I don't, I didn't really pick up on that too much to be honest with you, at least dialogue wise, but I understand like there is somewhat of a a disdain and for the most part, quite a bit of human characters are quite annoyed by most Uh cartoons. You know what I mean? I kind of had thoughts of, like white people going to like a jazz club mm. during the 50s or 60s when segregation was still a thing. And like the performers would be black musicians, but the crowd was all white. Mm. And like black people probably weren't allowed in the club mm. to see the show. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what it reminded me of. Mm. Which is weird to think about in this fucking movie about cartoon characters. Um, You know, something that was kind of brought up into my my attention while watching the film was I was thinking about racist cartoons like song of the South Mm. and stuff like that. Yeah. That was like kind of in my head while I was watching it like splash mountain at Disney world. Like that whole ride is based off that movie. Yeah. You know, not to get all political commentary on the podcast, but I just found it very interesting to think about in terms of where we're at now and not being alive for those moments in time. Just how, I don't really understand how stuff like that gets made. I don't know. Just things feel so much more. It couldn't happen. And like the th- stuff with like actors doing blackface and kind of stuff like that has been brought up into uh, light in the last few years. I feel like. Oh, yeah. I guess you just really don't think about it in a way from my perspective, being how young I am, the way I grew up or. Do you mean like you don't notice it? In, yeah. It's just not, not something that really. I don't understand how media can be produced like that in a way that would be entertaining to people. I just think about how can something be so blatantly unfair and racist and it be consumed by people and people enjoy that? Well, Austin, Walt Disney was famously a huge <laughs> fucking racist. He was like an anti-Semite, right? Like I believe anti- so. Anti-Semitic. Yeah. He's doing all right. He's somewhere frozen. <laughs> Figure it out. I wonder if we'll see him unfrozen in our lifetime. Mm. You ever notice the fact that all the pictures of Walt Disney have been edited? Because in what Walt, way? Walt Disney was a famous smoker, and all photos of him have been edited to edit out cigarettes. I did not know that. I'm pretty sure he like died of cancer or something like like lung cancer or some shit like that. Oh, probably. So like I'm he died. He died. Quote, unquote. They cut his fucking head off, <laughs> and they put him in a freezer. Uh, I don't think we'll see him on Frozen. I feel like, uh... This is gonna turn into, like, a conspiracy uh, podcast. Bruh, man. The return of Walt. They're not bringing him back, man. They're too worried about fucking covering up the flat earth, bro. They're trying to keep us from the knowledge, man. Space ain't real. All this shit with the telescope, it's just a fucking distraction, man. <laughs> We're off the rails tonight. Jesus. Well, <laughs> it's only it's only fitting for this for this film. Yeah. I want to talk about a couple of big moments that I found really interesting. I hope you don't mind if I go there already, but... I want to talk about Eddie and Toontown. Okay. Really bad. This is the moment in the film where I think it doesn't work as well. I completely agree. Because it's the inverse. There are like a a handful of shots that really work. But for the most part, it's really difficult to get your eyes to adjust to the fact that Eddie's in Toon World and it doesn't feel like he has a lot of weight to him. Especially like him driving the car into Toon World. I couldn't tell that he was looking out a window or stuff like that. 
like it's really it's really charming like the animation and stuff is like really nice but the fact that you're putting this human character with no other grounding behind him to like set up your eyes to relax on like a foreground i think it especially hurts the scene or the scenes that take place here because eddie kind of adheres to the rules of cartoons like when he takes the elevator up and he's like turned into a flat pancake for some reason Mm -hmm. when toons go to the city they don't really adhere to human rules so why would eddie do this like you know why would it work that way Mm -hmm. like i think it kind of as you say the grounding of the character it kind of ruins that in a way like i think the elevator shot where he's up on the ceiling was really nice but how we got there was very difficult. It was very obvious that he's on a green screen, and it's kind of frustrating. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because the production value has been really high at this point as far as like great cartoon integration into the world, and it kind of feels like the movie's stepping on its toes a little bit and kind of showing you, hey, there are some limitations to what we can do here, but we're going to show you anyway, which was kind of frustrating. I understand they have to go there. Yeah, it's where the story took them. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there's also, like, there's a handful of great shots. Like, when he's in the alley with Jessica Rabbit, I thought, it's great homage to film noir. It's uh, shrouded characters. But goddamn, what's his name? Dune? I can't even remember. It's the guy with the fucking chiclet teeth. <laughs> Why can't I think of what this is right now? Is it, no, it's the fucking, the whole guy that's trying to buy up Acme. Oh, Judge Doom. Judge Doom? Is it Doom or Dune? Doom. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Christopher okay. Lloyd. Okay. Yeah. This makes me when Jessica Rabbit's explaining to Eddie in the car in Toontown, it's like they're talking about Detective Doom, and I'm like, oh, MF Doom had to use like this clip somewhere <laughs> on the, like Doom. He's coming into. <laughs> yeah, you're was, probably right. It probably I was, was like, used because I heard it and I was like, this is perfect material for a, a, a MF Doom sample. There's something about the second act where. For some reason, like, my brain goes numb trying to think about what happens during it. Like, yeah, really bad. Most of my knowledge of the movie lies in the first and third act. The chase scene and the tune taxi and all that stuff, like, my eyes start glazing over. I completely agree. And I think it's something to do with what we've kind of already established with slapstick cartoon comedy. And watching, like, a human character move through that, it becomes... I don't know if it's like a Pavlov's dog thing where you're you are just trained to like glaze over like you would when you're watching Tom and Jerry or Bugs Bunny stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I guess it's less about plot and it's more about, hey, let's play, let's pay homage to a classic cartoon while like making a human character move through what we would do to you know Elmer Fudd or whatever the fuck. A lot of it has to do with. The writing becomes a lot less clever, where I think in the first and third act, there's all these great visual gags and And one-liners, one-liners, puns, like satire on old Hollywood and Mm -hmm. cartoons and stuff, which is all shit that I love a lot. And then when it turns into like cartoon chase scene, like I'm just bored in a way. I literally watched this less than 24 hours ago and I can't remember a lot about what happens in that section of the movie? He, like, does, like, the shining thing where he, like, goes up to a beautiful girl that he thinks is Jessica Rabbit. It turns out to be some fucking, what I would consider, like, a, a classic Middletonian meth head <laughs> looking woman. This is way too familiar. <laughs> way too familiar. Can I get, like, 75 cents for, like, my dog? 
I gotta run to the store. <laughs> I don't God know. Damn it. it just feels. It does feel like a, a pretty disconnected from the rest of the plot because the entire film has quite literally been homage to film noir with cartoons in it. Yeah, and even the soundtrack is that. The soundtrack is slow jazz and suspense, like strings and horns and and good tempo, like moving your characters through scenes. Good background music, like it, it's great. And like what they did with Jessica Rabbit. When she was on screen, it's always like this seductive horn. That was completely like ad-lib, created on the spot by the orchestra. They would play the film for the orchestra, and when she was on screen, someone would like solo or kind of have, uh, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, you consider it like just a solo, like a horn player would just, you know, kind of add that seductive flair to it. And it was a good way to add... Oh, a good creative life to a good soundtrack like that. I do have my gripes with the soundtrack at one point where I noticed it was a little off, and that's during the third act. What point uh, in particular? Like the, re- the scene in the, the Acme Factory? The reveal. There was some spots there where I felt like the tempo was really off. It kept playing like this same note over and over again at, at one point when it was like the reveal of Dr. Dr. Doom. Uh, <laughs> Judge Doom. Judge Doom. <laughs> Jesus. Names. It was just a little off for me. I noticed mm-hmm. it in the third act a lot. And I think one of the reasons why I don't like the third act as much is because it comes right off of Eddie being in Toontown. The momentum has been killed for you a little bit. A little bit. Okay, I get it. I think the third act is like fantastic. <laughs> what like, about it? What about it really sells it for you? Because Tim, there's a few things that I'm really frustrated about. I mean, maybe nostalgia plays mm. a part of it. I always remember Roger and Jessica being tied up and the yeah. the acetone shit being shot at them. Eddie doing the vaudeville dance <laughs> shit. <laughs> like it's. It becomes so incredibly goofy, and especially mm. for Eddie's character who hates tunes up until this point, where he kind of becomes tune-like in a human way. Mm. Like I think that stuff all plays out really good. Like his arc is satisfying to me. You're gonna hate me, and this is gonna ruin it for you a little bit. Okay, this reminds me of the Son of Mask a little too much. The mm. third act of this film. No. Rem- <laughs> See, I told you. Nah. Are you talking about like the dance numbers that begin The Son of Mask? That's all I remember from that movie is like a 20 minute like song intro. Oh my god. A little bit of that and in The Son of Mask, the whole thing was Loki wants to steal the baby cuz the baby is born of the mask and they do a bunch of whack shit and try to get the baby to like it's like if you put a baby you ever seen those things where they put a baby between mom and dad and it's like pick one let's see who the baby loves more let's see uh, this fucking undeveloped cricket brain decide which one it likes more it's just like this stupid thing that they do at the end and it reminded me of that because of the dance numbers and the big set pieces that are involved because in the son of mask that's a big thing at the end like Loki turns into like a carnival merry-go-round thing or some shit. It's just like, or like he turns into a jack-in-a-box. It's like this, uh, sorry, I don't mean to ruin it for you, but. No, you're not ruining it for me. I still think it's good. In that film, the dad is an animator as well, and I think that's supposed to play a part in it. So my brain is a little bit tied together for those two things. Okay. And that's the third act of that film, and it reminds me of the third act of this film. And I find Judge Doom to be a little much for me. I agree, actually. When I was a kid, 
I found Judge Doom to be the most terrifying presence, mm-hmm. especially with him putting the the cutest little cartoon shoe. Oh in my god, the, dude! The barrel of dip that as fucking they call it. broke my heart to watch that shoe it's, just die. It's so fucking unnecessary. It's like when Will Smith has to kill the dog in I Am Legend. It yeah. breaks your fucking heart to pieces. I think it does do a good job even as an adult watching this as making you detest the character Mm -hmm. but watching as an adult him being the bad guy is so telegraphed like it's very obvious from the first time he appears on screen that oh this is the guy like the whodunits kind of ruined from his presence being so obvious i guess and a part of that is the the things that become oblivious are I dress in all black, and my silhouette on screen is to be an omniscient (laughs) presence compared and contrasted to the rest of these characters. And I'm the bad guy that's trying to to kill all these cartoons. The whodunit is gone. What's unfortunate about it is, is because the first like 40, 30 to 40 minutes, the film feels like film noir. It feels like detective whodunit. And then it kind of just turns into a a cat and mouse chase, which kind of ruins the whole vibe that the movie gets set up on yeah which it's not like imperfect i understand i mean he is a tune after all like his presence Mm -hmm. would be over the top which makes sense and i think what like at one point when jessica shoots at him in the back alley in toontown he like runs away like he's almost like high kneeing (laughs) like he like i don't know his lines become more corny we're like at about an hour mark in the film, you get Roger Rabbit in the bar singing with all the bar dwellers and the bartender and Eddie, all these things. It's a really fun scene, and his presence coming on screen there is really felt, and it's great. And you know he's the bad guy, but it adds good weight. And by the end, though, it really feels like his actions at the beginning of the film that were being set up, it kind of falls apart a little bit in my, in my book. I think so, too. And like it's hard to to be heavy fisted about it because in the context of the film, it's like who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So there's that thing. It bothers me. It's a hard line to to balance. Mm-hmm. I think as an antagonist, he falls apart for for me a little bit. And the third act of the film struggles for me too because it feels like Eddie has come out on the other side of like choosing not to be an alcoholic anymore for some reason. And for some reason, he yeah. kind of. Yeah, like, I just don't understand why he's all of a sudden changed his tune. (laughs) 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 Fucking white people comedy. And so it just bothers me in a way. I don't know. I feel like the movie could have ended a lot differently. And something that, I don't know if you'll feel this way too, but there are moments where where the film becomes sinister, where, like, the shoe gets dipped in the in the dip. Yeah, and you feel it. And you feel it. Yeah, and, like... If this movie's PG-13 in the late 80s, to me, as a kid, it felt like this is a kid's show. This is a kid's movie. Like, this is this is not for adults. Coming at, to it as an adult, I'm thinking, hey, you really kind of played it safe in some aspects. Like, I feel like it should have been a little bit more sinister at, towards the end. I completely agree. Especially, like, leaning into film noir. You know what I mean? Yeah. Setting up the, like, that dark pace. The movie sheds that completely in the mm-hmm. third act. 
I still find it super entertaining, though. I'm not mm. going to lie. I love Christopher yeah. Lloyd hamming it up like crazy as mm-hmm. his character. After he's flattened by the steamroller and Eddie says, holy smokes, he's a dune. <laughs> and Christopher Lloyd gets up and, of course, like this flat animation is so fucking scary, mm-hmm. even to me now, where he says, surprised. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so, it's great in a way that I can't even explain. Um, he kind of turns into like this crazy lunatic. He takes off his fucking hat. His hair gets crazy. He fucking pulls his eyes out and they're like cartoon eyes. This used to scare me so bad as a kid. Which is like really smart to say that, hey, he's a cartoon. So we're going to animate, excuse me, we're going to animate his eyes now. They dispose of him too quickly though. After the reveal, we're like, he's the tune. All right, we beat him. Like movie's over. Dude, the final battle factory scene is like 20 minutes long. It's very long. It's very, very long. But we didn't really talk about it, but like the weasels have like a, they're like the mob for this character. They're like artificial tension to show up in a scene and be a threat to characters. I mean, they're all right, I guess. I wanted to talk about them because when they come visit the apartment, that's a really great scene when Roger's under the water. Well, while fucking Eddie's washing his clothes in the, in the <laughs> sink. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to skip over them because I felt like they were a good part of like the cat and mouse chase. Yeah, totally. And I don't want to like uh, forget about them because they quite literally laughed to death. This is one of the visual conclusions for a character that I really enjoy. They die in such a great way. What, the souls floating out uh-huh. of their bodies? And shit, even the one weasel is like grasping at the soul, trying to pull it back in. Like that's I was, like, I was like, hey, that's dark. That's <laughs> super dark. I I don't know. I think part of it for me, there's a lot of visual gags in this third act. And yeah, just coming off of that Eddie and Toontown, it really feels after you glaze over, it's hard to like settle back in because literally Right after Toontown, it's like, okay, everybody's tied up. We're going to reveal our big plan, and we're going to watch the characters solve the problem of getting through this final act. So it's difficult for me to like hang on and it get progressively more goofy as it continues through the end of the film. I don't know. I, it, it makes me miss the beginning of the film. But I don't know. Like, I mean, it's it's criticism in a way that I don't really know how you would write it based off like the first hour of the film being, for the most part, film noir like, do you set up a more sinister tone and, like, leave the reveal till later? Because the reveal happens probably, like, an hour and 20 in. The reveal of Doom being a tune? No, uh, like, him being the one that killed Acme and, you know, yeah. the gun coming through the window when Eddie confronts, uh, what's his face? I don't remember. He hires him. Oh, MK Maroon? Yeah. Or Maroon. RK Maroon? Like, that's great film noir right there that reminds me of like psycho that yeah that was super dark mm-hmm. when that happens and his like tie is stuck in the machine so his like body is kind of limp get shot over the in table. the back get sh- quite literally shot in the back like a squib and everything yeah and it's played like any other thriller murder mystery type movie little moments like that where i'm thinking you can go darker like you can continue that yeah they really do like meld a lot of tones in this movie mm-hmm I don't know. Would it be as special if it didn't go in the cartoony direction? I feel like that's kind of, it's like in the DNA of Mm. what it should be. Part of it to me is that they had to decide, hey, on the script writing, this film has to end in a positive note and everything has to continue. It has to come out on the other end in a a positive childish light 
And if they would have written it, or excuse me, written it darker, I think the movie overall would have a completely different feel and you would it would feel more like tragedy it would be strictly reserved to adults it would be less marketable and maybe that was something they considered as a studio to say hey we can't really follow maybe even the source material that's so maybe the source material is a little bit darker and we this has to be profitable for the studio like you, yeah, have you gotta to, sell tickets man. correct and the source material is a lot darker. I've read into this a little bit where in the book, Roger Rabbit and baby Herman die. And the Roger Rabbit character that is with Eddie Valiant in that story is a copy, like a clone or something. Like Whoa. the way they adapted it into this movie was way more consumable. Mm. I think I've read that people enjoy the movie way more than the book. I know we're like, we're in the home stretch here. Can I just comment on how weird the villain's plan is? Yeah, dude. Capitalism. Capitalism. <laughs> it like illuminates the problem with capitalism quite a bit. The the bad guy wants to abandon the rail car system, which apparently everybody likes in LA, to build freeways. And so everybody will have to own a car because I own the trains and the rail cars and I can dispose of them. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Are you telling me this is what happened? <laughs> I'm like, is this reason why we all have cars? Because of the lack of public transportation? And are you also telling me that in this universe they avoided that? Oh my god. Fuck. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, even Eddie... I almost completely forgot about that. In the beginning of the movie, when Eddie tries to hop onto the the railway car, he's talking to the cigarette-smoking children Mm -hmm. (laughs) on there, who he bumps uh, a smoke off of. Mm -hmm. uh, Thanks for the cigarettes. Like, who needs a car when you got the greatest public transportation in the world right here? Mm. Little things are hidden like that in this film. That's super weird to me. Oh, I don't want to unpack that. I don't want to do it. I can't do it tonight. You know, we've already been there. I can't. Oh, yeah. Talk about Flat Earth. We can't be doing this shit. I don't know. I don't know what I'd change. I don't think the movie would be kind of considered a classic in a way that it is now. If it did take a darker turn, it would be like a a cult classic for adults it's something that you get introduced to you watch fight club and what others a good coming of age film that you watch when you're 14 um i don't know for me it was like fight club was the one (laughs) (laughs) yeah fight club you watch fight club and roger rabbit man and you're a man now uh but i don't know i don't know what i think it would become more obscure and less marketable if it didn't kind of have a fun bombastic ending I'm fine with the way it is, uh, except for like tighten up that that second portion or the second act portion of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, I just want things to be a little tighter. It doesn't like ruin the film, but with analytical eyes that have been trained over the last few years, it, it's become more <laughs> difficult to yeah. let things go like that. If the thing doesn't look good on paper, it becomes harder to translate. But over overall, to me, technically and for the time it was made and all the man hours that are put into this film, I, like, respect the shit out of it. I just want things to be a little tighter on the script end, and that's all, like, Spielberg and Zemeckis, and, like, that you can't, you know, that that's that's the writer's room stuff that you can't really, uh, that doesn't translate into the man hour hardworking of, like, the crew and the animators and editors and soundtrack. And It's kind of like the Avatar problem, where, like, big focus on tech and special effects, and then mm-hmm. the story is not as satisfying. To me, considering... My problems with the film, setting that aside, I still think the film is really charming, and I think it's really fun. It feels like a great time capsule, something that kind of broke the mold a little bit. 
I mean, when you recommended the film, I'm thinking, holy shit, like, that's such a fun, like, that's (laughs) such a great movie. Like, I was so excited because it's, it's something that everybody's, like, probably seen or maybe doesn't talk about too much. But it's really, it was just really interesting. I respected it a lot, technically. There was great visual gags, and I do have problems with certain characters and my stuff with, like, Eddie deciding to not be an alcoholic all of a sudden, and the Toontown stuff, really, as you mentioned, like, I glaze over. But from, like, start to finish, I would say I'd probably give it, like, an 8 out of 10. I don't know. It's just something that I think has stood the test of time pretty damn well. I mean, it's 30 years old. Or no, wait. Yeah, it's 30. Okay, I can do math. <laughs> I can do things. <laughs> I'm educated. Public school system. I got it. I still like it a lot. And I think that's good as an adult. 8 out of 10 is very fair. My score is not that far off from it. I would also go with an 8 to an 8.5. This movie does a lot of things that I enjoy. It's a mystery whodunit, noir, the animation and human hybrid integration type mm-hmm. stuff witty dialogue and like some good cinematography moments it is hurt a lot by that second act slump but i think eight and a half is fair for me actually this movie makes me incredibly sad <laughs> because movie making isn't done like this anymore like we don't really get this any in 2022 where you have full scene of extras and animation and all these like practical animation going Mm -hmm. on and effects where now it would just be a big green room that people Mm. walk around a lot of that old movie magic is kind of lost stuff with like before we went on vacation and they had star wars on tv and we were like having a pool party and everything and we'd all just come inside and star wars was on and just watching like all those like ship battles and all this and just recognizing while it was on the screen that this took a lot of work. Yeah. And it like broke ground and it was so difficult and the end product was like magic. It doesn't happen a lot these days. No. And I know we like talk about Avatar all the fucking time for some reason. Like it just is a thing that appears on the podcast all the time. But <laughs> I think like there are those moments that happen while we're alive, when we get to see stuff like that happen, where it's like movie magic. And when I was a kid, that was the moment I remembered. And hopefully, even if like the script sucks and the story sucks, the absolute breaking of our current CGI understanding, and it, it just is something so much more and a glimpse into the future of like CGI technology, I'm hoping like Avatar 2 becomes that next moment you know, 10, 15 years later of just saying, you know, this is what we're going to step into from here on out. It happens with visionary filmmakers. I know Spielberg isn't the director, but he had a big role in helping Zemeckis in this one. Yeah. And Spielberg has been along for many of those groundbreaking moments like Jaws, E.T., things like uh, those pivotal pop culture moments in filmmaking. And he's just one of those classic directors that we respect in that in that aspect. And it's tough when you look at it in the in the past tense of those things but we have those moments they just feel few and far in between and uh hopefully you know for as long as you and i live we get to see like great movie moments like this and i wouldn't be surprised you know i mean we do consider this to be like a fun crazy breakthrough of like blending of genres and and medium but there are those moments where like polar express like it's got zemeckis's name on it where it's 
Dude, Polar Express was a big fucking deal. Even though it's like crude and doesn't really hold up visually compared to what we have today. That movie is the epitome of Uncanny Valley. Correct. But I honestly don't feel like it held that title, at least from my perspective, because I watch it as a young kid. I don't think it earned that title until we progressed technologically with movie making and CGI mm. and all these things. I don't know. Maybe I just get upset because I can't remember the last time I saw a movie that was all that charming like this. There's a movie that came out recently. It's called Chip and Dale's mm-hmm. Rescue Rangers or something. Uh-huh. And I think it's kind of trying to be like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where there's all this like... Um, blending of medium. Blending of the mediums and all this like meta commentary. I've seen a scene from the the movie where they go to a part of town called the Uncanny Valley <laughs> and they meet the Polar Express characters. What? That's fucking great. And they say like, he's got those Polar Express eyes. <laughs> like it's very creepy. That's awesome. I want more shit like that, you know? I think, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if... I think Ready Player One was kind of that for me a little bit, where... Okay. I've never seen that movie. Really? Have you really not seen that? That's one of my favorites when it... I think it came out in 2018, or maybe it was 2017. I can't quite remember, but... I think I was turned off from watching it because, like, the Red Letter Media review of it was very lukewarm. Mm. Um, I thought that movie was really charming. I don't think it's, like, a fucking masterpiece or some... perfect movie but that movie's really fun and it's hard to beat that fun i know the iron giants in it so that excites me do they have iron giant fucking gundams like there's a gundam in it like the japanese mecha anime uh fucking mecha godzilla like that's all like in the the end but that movie's really fun and that may come up on the podcast one day you never know but i've always kind of figured that it would at some point um well it's not but i will give you my recommendation uh i'm ready for it Dude, I haven't done an album in so long, and I'm doing an album. Okay, fuck yeah. What was the last album we did? Deftones? That was my last recommendation, yeah. Yeah. My last album recommendation. Look, man, I didn't know I had been trying so hard to be inspired to do a record, but I've just been in film mode for so long. Same. And, you know, the last record that I was really into was Kendrick Lamar's Mr. Morale, and we did a little mini episode on it and all these things, and... It kind of like scratched that itch a little bit and we didn't go that hard and we were absolutely hammered walking into that into that episode. So but I had like just a moment of revelation on Sunday. I was driving home and a song came on and I was like, yes, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Uh, (laughs) I was so excited. We're doing Frank Ocean's Blonde. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is gonna be really fun. This is so fucking weird. When it was my next turn, I almost was going to do Channel Orange. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I haven't been really inspired by music lately. And my whole thing was I've been listening to like lo-fi hip hop again for some reason. Like I listened to it in the car when I was reading. And I literally, it was a a Spotify playlist called Lo-Fi Hip Hop for Reading or whatever. Lo-Fi for Reading. And I was listening to it. And then uh, a song from... I believe I believe self control came on. That's oh, a good one. Oh, yeah, it's so good. And uh, I was like, this album has such a little percussion. It is very like string oriented. It feels lo fi at points. And I don't know. We haven't talked about Frank in a while, and he's kind of MIA. And we talk about him here and there. But I think this is going to be a really great record to talk about on the podcast. I feel like we used to talk about talking about Blonde when uh-huh. we first started the podcast. 
It was one of the first recommendations that I almost did, and I kept putting it off for some reason. But yeah, dude, this is a great choice. This is one of those records that feels like one of the last classics that are modern that I can remember. Mm-hmm. I don't for know, sure. Man. I'm excited to talk about it. I listened to the record all the way through already. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I haven't listened to this all the way through in about a year or two. So I'm going to get really emotional probably. <laughs> this this album hits me really hard. Oh, we'll bring it up. This album, <laughs> I think this album, uh, just a precursor for our next episode, I will leave us off on. I think this record has done a lot for everyone that has listened to it. Oh, yeah. And everybody that I've talked to about this record, I just think, I think everybody can relate to it in a way, especially like millennials and Gen Z and just the, the generations that caters to. I think, <laughs> I think it'll be really good as a podcast discussion. And I have my gripes. I'm excited. I'm super hyped. I'm so, I'm so excited. Um, it should be a good record for the format. It'd be a good discussion. We'll talk about how much we miss him. But until then, I'm going to say goodnight. Um, and if you could do me a good favor and uh, sign these motherfuckers out. Adios. Adios.